Father, uh, this is your word. Jesus is our Savior, and we are your people. And um, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon your people so that we would not only understand your word, but that it would change how we live. We ask that you would help us and teach us how to pray. We ask that you would help us and teach us to long to see your face, that you would help us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus, even when sometimes that's very hard, although carrying a cross is always hard. We give you thanks and praise that your son said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We ask, Father, that uh, your Holy Spirit would move and work within us so that your Holy Spirit would have a deeper place in our lives. Father, we ask that, uh, that you would do a, a, a great work, a, a work of your work in our lives this morning as we gather in the presence of Jesus. And this we ask in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, Revelation 13. <laughs> um, you know, uh, this, uh, I don't like horror movies in general. Uh, in fact, I, I rarely watch uh, horror movies. Um, I remember even when I was watching The Sixth Sense, I uh, watched it because I didn't think it was a horror movie for some reason. And uh, about a quarter of the way into the movie, I was watching it with a couple of my older kids at the time. I thought, if I was watching this movie by myself, I would turn it off right now and leave. But then I thought, I do not want to appear a wuss in front of my teenage sons. So I continued to watch the movie. Uh, having said all that, I, I actually do enjoy the television series The Walking Dead. And um, when I t tell you that I enjoy certain things, this is not uh, a recommendation that you necessarily go out and watch it. Um, because some of you might not like zombie uh, television series. But I actually, uh, I am going to talk about zombies later on in the service. Uh, for those of you who uh, understand such things. But having said all that, one of the interesting things about horror movies, etc., and in our culture, is that while there's a whole range of things in our culture, that there's many, many people in our culture who are fairly illiterate in terms of the Bible, and, and that's you know, fair enough, they haven't been raised as Christians, why would they know what Christianity is? But in fact, the idea of the beast and the number 666, there are many, many, many people who, uh, who would have understood that. If, if you were to go by, probably just stand at the corner of King Edward and Rito and ask people, are you familiar with the idea of 666 and the beast and the number of the beast? Like, I wouldn't be surprised if 80, 90, 95% of the people said they, they had heard of such things. So it's actually sort of interesting that today uh, we get to look at the original source of these ideas. And so it would be a great help to me uh, if you um, uh, actually... Yeah, let's, let's turn in the Bible, and uh, let's look at this great source of, uh, of these very, very uh, familiar ideas. And it's the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, and it's Revelation chapter 13. And actually, we're going to start reading like the very last sentence of the chapter before this. Um, and uh, the chapter before, it talks about the dragon, and the dragon is sort of a, an image of the devil. And, uh, and here's how the text begins, and it goes like this. Revelation, the very last bit of chapter 12 and then into the chapter 13. And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, 
And by the way, it's, uh, the implication of the text is that the dragon is calling the beast out of the sea. In the original language, that's the implication. So the dragon stands on the sand of the sea looking out. And then uh, John, who's having this vision, he sees a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and uh, a name of blasphemy on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and in the original language, it, it means a death wound. But its death wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can find, fight against it? Now, he, <laughs> I'm going to say some shocking things about this text. Uh, but I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. And so I'm going to, to repeat, and Andrew's going to put it on the screen. I'm going to repeat some things that I said last week just to sort of set the stage for what I'm, I'm saying. And, and by the way, uh, today, for all of the things that are on the screen, I think by Monday or Tuesday, if, if you're interested, you can go on our webpage and, and you can write them down. This first part, I'll be, it'll be far too quick for you to write down. But here's the first thing. Before I say all of the other things about the text, the shocking thing about the text, to understand the shocking claim of the text, You have to understand this. The Bible teaches that the devil is real. He is our enemy. He is alive. He is active. He is doomed. And in the face of his opposition, we, that means followers of the Lamb, are to testify with our lips and with our lives of our Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified. That's the... that's what the, we have to understand, that the Bible is not just, uh, that the Bible is saying that the devil is real, just as real as I am or you are. And, and to sort of emphasize this, this is also what I said last week, which I, we need to understand if we're to hear Revelation 13 as it's meant to be heard. After you hear it, you might say this is all rubbish or whatever, but at least you need to hear what it's saying, what the Bible's claiming to say. The devil is real. He is not a metaphor an analogy, a symbol, a process, a myth, a mere storybook character, or a social construct. He is not a primitive way to talk of mental illness or evil. He is not a tool of politicians to label others or enemies, although some politicians try to make it out as if he's a tool, but he's not a tool. He's not a creation of politicians or cultural leaders to label others. The devil is not misunderstood. He is not a hero. He is not a rebel. He is not a freedom fighter. He is not hip. He is not cool. He is not enlightened. He is not yin or yang to God. He is not the antithesis leading to a new synthesis, He is not energy, friend, ally, means, tool, or joke. In ourselves, he is more powerful than we are. The devil is real. He is our enemy. He's alive. He's active. He's doomed. And in the face of his opposition, 
we are to testify with our lips and with our lives of our Savior Jesus Christ crucified. As I said last week, if the devil does not exist, if the devil in fact is merely a metaphor or analogy or a symbol or a social construct or something like that, then it's a complete and utter waste of time to read the book of Revelation. I'd say it's probably a waste of time to read the Bible. And uh, it's, uh, it's just a waste of time to even talk about it. But if the devil does exist, then today's teaching, just like last week's, is immensely practical. So here's the thing. Remember I said that the text has, uh, that the book of Revelation is, a, is a, a wonderful book for those of us who have very, very great visual our minds just love images, and so this, it presents this very, very powerful image of the, of the devil like a dragon, a huge dragon. Think of smog, only with many heads, and, uh, and even far more horrible. And, 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 and he stands on the, on the sand of the sea, looking out to the sea, and by he believes his power, he causes a beast to arise out of the sea. And if you'll notice very early on, it says uh, that he has, uh, was like a leopard, verse 2, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority to the beast. And uh, that imagery comes from the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, it's very clear that these are a succession of empires. So uh, from this and from the rest of the chapter, it's very, very clear that the beast is, and here's where people differ, whether it's an individual, but if it's an individual or not, that the thing is it's, it's, it's the government and it's the state. It's a type of, it's an empire. It's not only a government, a state, it's the judiciary, it's the military, it's the police. Um, it's the state. It is a government. It is a person, the government, it's that which exercises political and cultural authority over nations. That's the claim of the text. Here's the shocking point. Andrew, if you could... Uh, put that up, that would be great. The devil can have a significant impact on any institution, even the state and the government. That's what Revelation chapter 13 is saying, that the devil can have a significant impact on any institution, even the state and the government. See, I, I needed to say that earlier part because it's very common maybe in certain types of political discussion or cultural discussion about saying something's demonic. And what we mean when we say demonic in our culture just means, like rather than saying it's bad, we want to say it's really, 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 really bad. So we say it's demonic. But the, the Bible here is making a very, very different claim. Uh, not that it's not bad, it is bad, but that actually the devil that there is, it is possible for the devil, not just... Last week we talked about the, primarily the one major way that most people experience the devil's sort of hand or touch in their lives. And if, if you, have, you can listen to last week's sermon online. And I was talking about a great sense of condemnation and accusation that can, that can completely and utterly... Uh, it, it, can, it, can, it can have a powerful, powerful role in our, our, our lives, a sense of condemnation and accusation. And I also warned of the fact that there could be a, a more direct contact with Satan, uh, and, and I warned us against Ouija boards and other things. But just as in our culture we tend to think of religion and spirituality as being something inherently private and sort of inside of us and often a cross between a hobby and an emotion, 
Uh, and so it is even maybe when we speak of the devil or demons, it's easy for us to think of it as being merely personal. But the Bible here in chapter 12 and chapter 13 of Revelation is saying that not only is the devil one who we can experience in our lives through accusation and condemnation, and maybe we will have a more direct contact with him, the devil also can affect and impact institutions. Institutions. Even the government and even the state. Um, you know, as I was working on the sermon this week, I've, I've been reading, I, I read like several books at the same time, you know, bits and pieces of books, and I, I was reading a little bit about Corey Ten Boom. How many people here remember who Corey Ten Boom is or who heard of Corey Ten Boom? A fair amount of you. Okay. Uh, on Friday, it was the 70th anniversary of her capture by the Nazis. I just happened to, I was just reading it, and it, it mentioned, I was reading a book, and it mentioned on February 28th, 1944, that was the day that Corey Ten Boom was woken from sleep by, um, by a sound of loud knocking on her door, and it was the Gestapo. Uh, Corey Ten Boom at the time was 54. Her sister was five years older than her. They were both unmarried. They lived with their father, who was in his 80s. I think he was 83. And uh, they had played a central role in hiding Jewish people from the Nazis and uh, as being part of the Dutch resistance. And that was the day that they, uh, their uh, betrayers betrayed them, and uh, she, of course, eventually went to a, to a concentration camp, her and her sister and her dad, and her sister and her father would die in the concentration camps, and Corey uh, would miraculously uh, survive and be delivered and go on to have a speaking ministry. And for Christians who were caught under Nazism, it was very easy for them to wonder if, in fact, there was not just something evil about Nazism, but, in fact, whether there was something devilish, and I mean in terms of a devil being involved in it. And um, we feel very uncomfortable about such language uh, living in Canada, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a, in a moment. But uh, for some Christians who live in some parts of the world today, and for Christians throughout history, there would be times in certain cultures and certain times when it would be easy for us to actually take a text like this and realize that there is probably a great truth in it, that we cannot li limit the devil's work purely to people, but also to institutions, even the government, even the state. And, um, and, and here's, here's the thing. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to have a little bit of a... Okay, I know there's always in any room this side, there's a few grammar geeks. We're going to have a grammar geek moment, okay? So for you grammar geeks, and the rest of you can listen in, you want to just sort of go ahead to verse 7 and 8. And look at verse 7 and 8. There's a grammar geek moment coming here in a second. Uh, also it was allowed, that's the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And notice that verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. In the original language, all the way through chapter 13, uh, in fact, all the way up to this point, just a little bit past it, the verb tenses are a particular tense, which means that 
everything that's being described can be described as in some way being true in the future and in the past and in the present. And uh, in the rest of chapter 13, when it's talking about the second beast, uh, once again, the, the verb tenses are all a type of a verb tense that allows us to understand it on one level, talking about the future, the past, and the present. But in the midst of a whole range of verb tenses like that, there's only one future tense in the entire text. And that is in verse 8. All who dwell on earth, this is in the original language, will worship it. In other words, the rest of the text is describing something that on one level there's a certain degree to which it can be true even today. But the text reminds us that there will be a a complete fulfillment of this text at some day in the future. That at some day in the future there will be a a beast, a, a political reality that will in fact have a type of worldwide reach that will affect everybody. That at that time, there will, in a sense, be those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which I'll talk about in a moment, or those who, who quite literally, quite literally, are involved in the worship of this beast. But that is pointing to a future time, and all the right, rest of the way through the text, it's talking about things which can be approximated now, but are not the fullness that will come. See, one of the things that you have to understand about the book of Revelation is this, that, and if, if you don't get it, if, if I haven't been clear about it other weeks, I apologize, is the Bible very clearly teaches that Jesus will return again, that God will bring history to a close. And it's because the very one who has created all things, the very one who sustains all things, the very one, the Lamb, who died to redeem those who turn to him in repentance and faith, that that is the very same person who will bring all things to a close. That's the ground for hope. That's the ground for repentance. That's the ground for being able to stand in the face of the dragon and stand in the face of the beast and stand in the face of evil in our culture wherever we find it. And it's all because of the fact that the lamb who was slain, who redeems all who put their faith and trust in him, is the same one who will someday return, whether it's in a week's time, whether it's in seven years' time, seven years' time, 700 years' time, we do not know when it is. But at some point in time, most of the thing, all of the things that we've been talking about in the book of Revelation, there will be a sense where, not a sense, it will be, it, it will be, it will be in its fullness. And those, Lord have mercy, who are alive at that time, will see and understand it in its fullness. And, and in a, what the, the text is doing is it's trying to give us a language and a grammar and a set of images to understand our own culture, but also if we happen to be that generation that are still alive when that final time comes, that we will have a set of images and language and, and, and ideas to help us to understand what in fact it is that is going on. Now, does this mean here, by the way, this, this text, George, are you, you, you saying that the, the dragon, the, the, the devil can have a, a profound impact on institutions, human institutions, uh, even the state? Does that mean, George, that all the people that we know that work for the military should quit? Does that mean that all of those who work in the police and the judiciary should quit? Does that mean those who work on Parliament Hill should quit? No. Here's the thing. Andrew, if you could put this up. Here's a a prayer for us to pray, and it's sort of a very important text to understand 
Um, it's a prayer for us to pray, in a sense, an application, a take-home for us to understand what the implication of this text is for us in terms of how we live. And here's how I put it. Dear God, please help me to seek the true good of this city. Please help me to seek your definition of the city's good, not the city's own definition of its good. Dear God, please help me to seek the true good of this city. Please help me to seek your definition of the city's good, not the city's own definition of its good. Um, one of the, the lessons of the book of Revelation, and I mentioned it when I was describing that, that point that I used last week, is that you know, the devil is real, he is our enemy, he is alive, he is active, he is doomed, and in the face of his opposition, in the face of his opposition, we are to bear witness with our lives and with our lips of Jesus Christ crucified. And, and the book of Revelation isn't telling us that because these things are happening, we should live in fear. It doesn't tell us these things so we will brood or be consumed or obsessed with them. It doesn't tell us these things so that we will live in holy ghettos or enclaves. We have a fundamental, we have a fundamental vocation that comes from God to bear witness to Jesus. And we have a fundamental uh, uh, vocation that comes from God, not only to bear witness to Jesus, but to seek the good of the city. And now I don't, I don't know what advice I would give if, if we were maybe in that very, very final time. I mean, this text would inform it. But, but here's the primary thing, is that when we seek the good of our city, what we do not seek is the city's own definition of the good. We seek Jesus' definition of the good. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I've been reading some things about him this past week as well. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, by personal order of Hitler, uh, was uh, executed uh, just a very, very short while before Hitler himself took his own life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, uh, a leader of the Confessing Church, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, I, maybe not many of you know this, but the thing about Bonhoeffer is that early on, he was one of the very, very first people in Germany to speak out about the evils of Nazism and to warn about the evils of Nazism. And early on in the 30s, he actually tried to create an underground seminary because he, he believed that increasingly the seminaries and the churches, they, it, they were, uh, because they wanted to curry favor and maintain their position, they were becoming Nazi in their theology. And so he created an underground seminary, which was eventually uh, uh, overcome and, and closed by the Gestapo. But how he ended up hiding and working against the Hitler for many, many years is he joined military intelligence. Because for many years under Hitler, the main source of opposition within Germany was devout Christians within military intelligence. And one of the ways that they sought the true good of their country was to document the evils that the Nazis were performing, was to communicate the evils of the death camps to the wider world, and to seek to overthrow Hitler. That is how they sought the good of their country. They did not allow Hitler to define the good of Germany. They went to God's word written. They went to the Lamb to understand God's word written. And so it is. Apologize for a second if I... I, I I'm just going to say this anyway. 
our city might think that more abortion is good. Our, our city might think that euthanasia is good. And we are to pray for the good of our city and seek the good of our city, but our city is wrong about that. What is good for the city is that the strong care for the weak. What is good for the city is that the strong and the healthy care for the defenseless. What is good for the city is that we rescue those who are poor and lonely and deprived and depressed, have no power, and that we seek to rescue them, to restore them, to protect them. And so there might be many ways that we can work in harmony with our city. Uh, we, could, we, can, we can feed the poor. We, we, can, we can give to orphans around the world, and, and we can agree with them. But, but where the city is wrong, we still seek the true good of this city. And it's the Lamb who determines the true good, not the city. And so it is that the devil can have a significant impact on any institution, even the state and the government. And we are to pray that in any situation, uh, I mean, the, um, the example I gave of Bonhoeffer, uh, many of the it was uh, with the, Val, the the so-called Valkyrie plot, uh, which they they put a bomb in a bunker that Hitler was at, and a leg of a table, amongst other things, protected Hitler. And if you've seen the Tom Cruise movie, it it ignores the Christian side, uh, but many of the Bonhoeffer's friends and family members, very devout Christians, that plot ended up being the death of them. And um, but they. They sought to serve their city by the, by the Lamb's definition of the city's good. And that is always our vocation as followers of Jesus. Now, some of you might say, um, George, that's... Okay, that's, that's uh, I have to get my mind around the fact that the devil could actually have an impact on cultural institutions, and I'm not quite sure what to make about it. I, I can see it's a, I can see that you believe it, and I accept that the Bible teaches it, and it's just something I have to sort of think through. But George, I'm a little bit confused by something that you haven't gotten to in the text, and maybe you won't because I, I know you have a time limit in terms of what you speak. And some of you might be saying, George. I don't quite understand really how Christians think of the difference between the beast and Jesus. It's an honest question. I mean, George, don't you guys believe that like miracles are good? But the beast, remember when Ken was reading a few moments ago that the second beast that performs miracles? And, and, and George, don't you, like why is it that you want to follow Jesus rather than this beast? I mean, you're saying that the beast is evil, but why are you wanting to follow Jesus rather than the beast? Doesn't the beast die and come to life? And isn't, George, the whole reason that you follow Jesus, isn't a very key part of the reason that you follow Jesus is that Jesus died and come to life? So I'm, I'm a little bit confused about why you think there's such a big difference here. Like, George, isn't it maybe a, a text about how, like, any type of thing can sort of be demonic, even following Jesus can be a little bit demonic? It's a very good series of questions. Let's just look again at the text. Look again at Revelation chapter 13. Look at verse 2. 
And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have, and actually the, it, the, the, the text here is playing around with it a little bit. It's a bit starker, but its head had a mortal wound, a death wound. But its death wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Just sort of pause here for a second as we're reading. You know, one of the really interesting things is if you ever watch a movie where a TV show and, and somebody says that's blasphemy, don't you automatically think that that's a person who's not a good person? Isn't it sort of very interesting that in our culture we've lost the sense of blasphemy? That even to mention it is something that culturally puts us as if we're a bit clueless? Just an idea. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. This is the death knell of prosperity gospel. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, of the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb's book of life. Talk about that in a moment. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You see, that's the key to that last prayer point, is that the whole point of, of making clear that the devil can have an impact on culture and institutions is to call us to faithful endurance and enduring faithfulness where we are. It's a very, very center of the text. I'm going to return to it at the end, but continue on about the miracle stuff. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. I'm not going to talk about it very much. This is a very, very powerful image. It's an image which God desires to have as part of our mental furniture to help us understand what's going on that there can be a beast, a demonic beast, that, that uh, had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Very powerful image to guide our prayers and discernment. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed, whose death wound was healed. The third time it says it. <coughs> It, the second beast, performs great signs, it's the word for miracles, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people, and by the miracles or the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded, fourth time it says that, by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image, that's an idol, an, uh, an idol of the beast, so that the image, the idol of the beast might even speak might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast, the idol of the beast, to be slain. Now, yeah. so what's, what's going on? Here's the point, Andrew, if you could put it up on the screen. Jesus truly died on the cross and truly defeated evil and death and every hostile spiritual power. He did not die only to die again. 
He did not die to live a living death. In a moment, I'm going to give you my zombie reference. Jesus truly died on the cross and truly defeated evil and death and every hostile spiritual power. He did not die only to die again. He did not die to live a living death. Uh, some of you have heard this illustration before. It's one of my favorite illustrations about what one of the things which is involved in, in salvation. Uh, and that's the story, uh, a true story, uh, uh, happened quite a few years ago. I think I had four or five kids at the time, four kids, I think. They're all very young. And I was up in Eganville, where I was uh, the pastor, and my wife was down uh, in Ottawa um, visiting her mother in the Glebe. And uh, Louise woke up in the middle of the night, three or four o'clock in the morning, with the sense that something was wrong. And uh, her mother lived in a big old three-story Glebe house, and uh, Louise had a sense that something was wrong, and she went to the door, and she opened the door, and the hallway was filled with smoke. And in fact, the entire ground floor of the house was completely consumed in fire. And um, I was up in Eganville. I didn't know anything about this. Uh, Louise looked around. They couldn't get out of one window, but there was another window um, she went and woke up her mother. She gathered the very, our very, very, very young children at the time, and she was able to open the window. She's young and, and healthy, um, and she's able to, to, outside of the window, sort of a, a couple of feet to the, to the right, um, uh, there's and a couple of feet down, there's a slanting roof of a shed, and she figures that she can get from the window to the shed, and from that position... With some effort, she would be able to, to help the children get the children and bring the children to the top of the shed and then help her mother, who was older, over to the shed as well. And so um, she got herself to safety, and from that position of safety, she reaches across the gap to the place for which the flames are coming and is able to bring each of the children over <laughs> to the shed, down to the ground, and the, all of them in the house uh, Louise is here at church today, so she's obviously still alive. So it, it worked out, and I'm very, very thankful for it. That's a very, very good illustration of one of the, of the great truths of the gospel. In the gospel, we believe that Jesus truly died, that he truly died upon the cross, that he truly died upon the cross, and he tasted everything there is to taste of death without anything left over. Whatever death is, Jesus tasted it. And on the third day, he emerged on the far side of death, having completely and utterly defeated death. And one of the things that happens on the cross is that Jesus is able to reach across that vast divide of death and reach his hands out. And those of us who cannot escape death, cannot escape death, we put our hands out and Jesus' hands reach farther to us. And if we put our hands out, his strong hands does what we cannot do by ourselves or in and of ourselves and takes us through death to the other side where he has completely and utterly defeated death. And that is what Jesus is doing for ordinary people like you and me. That song that we sang, the last song that we sang for thieves, for the poor, for the powerless, for the rich, for the powerful, for every human being, death defeats us all. And the Christian claim is that Jesus defeats death on our behalf. And if we humbly put our faith and trust in him, he will take us to the far side of death where death has no longer any hold on us. That's what my wife did to the children and to her mother. And that's, you see, why we worship Jesus and not Lazarus. 
Lazarus was dead for four days, longer than Jesus. But Jesus, Lazarus doesn't cause himself to come back to life. Jesus calls Lazarus back to life. But Lazarus emerges into death and returns to this side of death. Death, he will still have to die. Remember in the point, I think it's, yeah, it's still up on the screen. What am I saying that the Bible teaches? That Jesus truly died on the cross and truly defeated evil and death and every hostile spiritual power. He did not die only to die again. He is not Lazarus. That's why we don't worship Lazarus. We worship Jesus. That's why we don't trust Lazarus. We trust Jesus. That's why we don't trust the widow of Nain's son. We trust Jesus. But what about the beast? Well, here's where the analogy of Louise doesn't, doesn't work. doesn't work. Because you see, um, what happens is that we Christians understand that what Jesus does on the cross is deals with that which causes death and all of our bondage and alienation from God. That on the cross, remember last week there, I said there were six words for the rest of our life? In my place, condemned he stood. In my place, condemned he stood. After the sermon last week, I looked it up. It's from a title of a book by Jim Packer and Mark Deaver, and they get the word from an old hymn. It's a line in an old hymn. In my place, condemned he stood. So on the cross, Jesus, by his offering of himself, taking into himself my condemnation, my doom, he deals with evil. He deals with my separation and alienation from God. And he deals with, with all accusations or condemnation that could come against me or any of you because of, of my sin and my rebellion against God. And uh, then when he rises from the dead, it's a, it's a true act of victory. He has defeated sin and death and all hostile spiritual powers, tasted all there is to taste of death, all there is to taste of evil, all there is to taste of condemnation, and he emerges on the far side completely and utterly triumphant. But here, the beast is a living death. He is alive, a type of life, but it is not a life that has dealt with hostile spiritual powers. It is not a new life that has dealt with evil. It is a life deepening in evil, deepening in accusation and condemnation, deepening in rebellion against God. It is closer to what we understand in popular parlance of becoming, dying to become a zombie than dying for new life. It is a death and a life that deepens us in death and deepens us under the control of hostile spiritual powers. The same dragon that sought to devour the child is the guiding principle of the new life. Jesus defeats the beast, all of the way through the language. The language of the whole text is one of having Jesus defeating the beast, defeating the demon. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is radically, radically different than what's being discussed here. Even miracles, 
the Christian arguments about miracles are a defeat against, it's to argue against naturalism. It's a, a philosophical term. It's, a, it's, it's an argument against naturalism and, and atheism. But it's not a claim that all Christians don't claim that only God performs miracles, that are all miracles point to God. That's not a Christian claim. Christians accept the fact that demons can do things which can't be accounted for purely by natural means. The point isn't whether or not something happens according to natural means or not. The point is, does it point us to the lamb or does it point us to the dragon? Does it point us and reconcile us to God or does it deepen us in our rebellion against God? Does it bring us to life or does it bring us to death? That's the point of the miracles. It's why they have to be discerned. And so the takeaway for us, the take-home for us is that if Jesus truly died on the cross and truly defeated evil and death and every hostile spiritual power, he did not die only to die again. He did not die to live a living death. The implication for us is this. Dear God, I thank you that Jesus is the lamb who was slain. I thank you that because of his sacrificial death and mighty resurrection, I, by repentance and faith in him, have my name forever written in his book of life. Dear God, I I thank you that Jesus is the lamb who was slain. I thank you that because of his sacrificial death and mighty resurrection, I, by repentance and faith in him, have my name forever written in his book of life. You see, it's it's the the wonderful thing. You you go back to that image uh, in chapter 8, verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship at everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book uh, uh, book of life of the lamb who was slain. Is that, you see, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, God writes my name in a book. I don't write my name in that book. It's a book of those who belong to Jesus, who have been reconciled to God by Jesus. God not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses, not because we are more powerful or more wonderful or more insightful. It's because Jesus has conquered death and he's conquered sin and he's conquered hostile spiritual powers and he does it for you and he does it for me and he reaches his hands across and all who humbly reach their hands can only reach a tiny distance. His hand is strong and his arm is long and he reaches down. My grip is weak. His grip will not fail. And when I reach out to him, he will grab my wrist crossing that infinite distance from heaven to earth and take me as his own, and no work of the beast can ever overcome it. That is the Christian confidence in the face of the beast. One, I see my time is, is up. Just, just one thing, uh, ask your, um, your patience. Some of you might say, George, I have an easy time believing in uh, demons. I have a hard time believing that I could worship a beast. Like, what do you think I am, George? You think I'm like a, a tweener girl getting, going kooky over, you know, Justin Bieber or whoever the, the latest little tweeny heartthrob is? Do you think I'm like one of those political type of geeks who get all excited at a convention over something that Kathleen Wynne says or Hudak says or Merois says or Harper or Trudeau or Mulclair? Do you think I'm like one of those like really odd people who get all excited at a convention over something. I have a hard time believing that I would ever worship anything. Like I have an easier time believing in demons than I would worship the beast. Uh, just here in, in closing, uh, a very, very important thing. Uh, the Bible teaches 
Andrew, if you could put it up, is to be human is to worship. The Bible teaches is that to be human is to worship. Therefore, the question I daily need to face is, who or what am I worshiping? Who or what am I worshiping? And the heart of worship is an ecstasy. The heart of worship is, what do I serve? What do I love? What do I obey? What do I trust? What do I hope in? Like, as you go through your day, what are you serving? What are you loving? What are you hoping? What are you, what you, what are you serving, loving, obeying, hoping, trusting? What do you put your trust in, your hope in? What God or gods are, are organizing your day in terms of the things that you serve, love, obey, trust, and hope in? And, and the Bible teaches that human beings are always serving something, always loving something, always obeying something, always trusting something, always hoping in something. And unless the supreme thing that we serve and love and obey and trust and hope in is, is God himself, then all these other lesser things become gods to us. And we might not feel ecstatic about it. I mean, maybe we will. Maybe if we're worshiping money and we win $100,000, we will get ecstatic about it and we'll look just like a tweeny girl uh, worshiping the latest heartthrob. Maybe it wouldn't even be $100,000. Maybe it's finding a $20 bill in your pocket. I don't know. Maybe it has to be more, but it's not all about ecstasy. It's about serving, loving, obeying, trusting, and hoping in something. And here's the, here's the sort of the takeaway from the text for us. It's this. Dear God, please help me to recognize who or what I serve, love, obey, trust, and hope in. If it is not you alone, then help me to repent and learn to worship you alone for your glory. Dear God, please help me to recognize who or what I serve, love, obey, and trust and hope in. If it is not you alone, then help me to repent and learn to worship you alone for your glory. Please stand. Remember the very center of the text is is, uh, is, uh, verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Uh, we enter the Jesus way one by one, but we walk the Jesus way with Jesus and others. That's what, that's what the Christian life is, that we enter the Jesus way by putting our faith and trust in him. We acknowledge that we have a hard time. We serve, love, obey, trust, hope in all sorts of things, um, and, and we have a hard time doing it in our own effort, our own, our own flesh, doing that with God. We need to be reconciled to God by what Jesus does upon the cross. And when we put our faith and hope and trust in him, we enter the Jesus way just one person at a time. My parents can't do it for me. My kids can't do it for me. I have to do it myself. But I walk the Jesus way. You walk the Jesus way with Jesus and others. And the book of Revelation is trying to tell us that his way may be very hard at times. It's very hard probably to be a follower of Jesus in Iran today or Saudi Arabia today. So there's places in the world where it'll be very hard to, be, to walk the Jesus way with Jesus and others. But it is never impossible or doomed because the primary work is done by Jesus for us. And the Bible invites us to respond to the gospel, and as we respond to the gospel, the story of Jesus, to pray that we'll be gripped by the gospel in such a way that our lives will be formed to bring God glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Father, I give you thanks and praise that you did not weigh our merits but pardoned our offenses. We give you thanks and praise that your son did not die upon the cross only to, have to, only to come back to life and have to die again. We give you thanks and praise that when he died upon the cross, he defeated sin and defeated death and defeated all hostile spiritual powers so that when we come to him in repentance and faith, he gives us true life, eternal life, everlasting life. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We give you thanks and praise that he does not enter us, have us enter more deeply into death or evil, a living death, that he offers us life, eternal life. We give you thanks and praise, Father, for the great victory of Jesus. May your Holy Spirit so move and work within our lives that we are gripped by the gospel, so gripped by the gospel day by day that we bring you glory with our lives. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.